Christmas is coming. I hope you guys are excited about it. I don't know if I'm more excited about Christmas coming or the fact that Star Wars is coming out in less than two weeks. Um, I already got my tickets in the big crazy recliner chair. Um, but Christmas is coming, and I wanted to start off the sermon just by asking, like, what do you love about Christmas? What do you guys love about Christmas? I don't care who wants to answer. Bean, what do you got? Time together with family. Time together with family. Me too. What do you got, Paul? You love the music? Really? Like Feliz Navidad and all that stuff? All right. I'm going to ask you that again around Christmas, and you'll be like, the music. What do you got, Sam? The food. What, you got a favorite meal for Christmas? All the foods. Yeah. What do you got? Quite literally everything. I love that season. What do you got, honey? Yeah. Christmas boots? Christmas movies. What's your favorite Christmas movie? The Grinch? I, I like, a, it's a Thanksgiving movie, but Home for the Holidays with Holly Hunter. It's a little older. It's hysterical. What do you got? No school. No school. Praise the Lord. In the back. School. I think you're just looking for a reaction. One more. What do you got? Christmas lights. I like the Christmas lights. Where, where do you guys like to go to see the best Christmas lights around here? My house? Your neighborhood? Uh, Oak Ridge is really good. Um, they have some place in like uh, A&M area that's crazy bananas. Yeah, the Wonderland. Well, hey, um, all of those are good answers. There's nothing wrong with any of those answers. But as believers in Christ, there's really only one answer. I want you guys to see... If you can use your minds to discern my favorite thing about Christmas, which is implicit that I'm showing you this video. It's, it's in there. It's not Christmassy, but the answer's in there. Check this out. Hey, come on, y'all. I've been slaving over this for hours. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, hey, Zeus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of dominoes, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR, as we call them. And, of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who is a stone-cold fox. I mm. also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible, and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, we... um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the brace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus, like, with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with, like, an angel band. And I'm in the front row 
Hey, Cal. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant, so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won and $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money that I have accrued over this past season. Also, due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace, I just want to say that Powerade is delicious mm. and it, it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 Let's yeah. dig in. That was a hell of a grace, man. You <laughs> nailed that like a split hog. I appreciate that. I'm not going to lie to you. It felt good. All right. What's Justin's favorite thing about Christmas? Prayer. Baby Jesus, man. Prayer to baby Jesus I would have also taken. You guys, Ricky Bobby clearly loves baby Jesus. I love baby Jesus. You should love baby Jesus, too. Why? Why should we love the fact that our Savior was, was born and came to this earth? I'm going to answer that question in Isaiah 53. It's an Old Testament prophecy that God said, be on the lookout for this so you can recognize my son when he comes. Isaiah 53 says, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. And there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. There was nothing to attract us to him. He was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with, with deepest grief. And we turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. And he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole, and he was whipped so that we could be healed. Now, this is an Old Testament prophecy that says, if you want to recognize the Messiah, here's some clues. This is what the Messiah will be like, what he'll go through, what to look for. This is the Son of God that I've been promising since the beginning. This is the Savior of the world, and this is what he will experience. And you guys, we should love Jesus baby, teenage, bearded, and all, we should love him because of those last four lines, just as an example. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole, and he was whipped so we could be healed. There's four points of good news there. If you are stuck right now in any sort of rebellion, just think about your life right now. Think about your circumstances. Is there anywhere in your life where you're rebelling against your folks, against your teachers, against society. Like, I don't care what it is, but anywhere where you're rebelling, well, do you know that Jesus came? Like, he's already come. He's already here to bring you back to God. When I'm in rebellion and I'm like, like stubborn as a mule and just I'm going my way, it is very hard to come back. But Jesus came so that we could come back easily. If you are guilty of sin in anywhere of your life, if you are experiencing any ounce of shame or guilt anywhere. And even as I say those words, I feel like you're like, Ugh, shame, guilt, is it in you? Jesus came. He was crushed so that we could be set free from that. 
If you're living in shame and guilt, there is freedom available to you now because Jesus was crushed in order for us to be free from that. If you feel incomplete, man, I almost want to ask for hands. Who in here feels like they're missing something or life is missing something or you desire something and it's just not there? Do you feel that way? Jesus came to make you whole, to give you a full picture of who he created you to be. If there is anyone in this room that's in pain, emotional pain, physical pain, spiritual pain, Jesus came to heal you. If you are living in constant pain, like help is available, healing is available, ask for it. He came so that we could be healed. I want to answer two questions for us today in our sermon. Question number one was, was Jesus the Messiah that the Bible promises? Was Jesus the Savior that we were supposed to be looking out for? Like, was he just a great teacher, as many people say? Was he just a guy that, like, had a rocking beard and did some neat stuff? Was he the Messiah, or was he just some other dude in history? And if he was the Messiah, question number two is, how should we respond to that? How should we respond to the fact that God sent his one and only son to live and die on this earth so that we could be made right with him. So how do we answer the question, was Jesus the Messiah? Well, the Bible is full and full and full of these things called prophecies, which tell us what to look for. Prophecy defined is this, a message of divine truth revealing God's will or a divinely inspired prediction. And it's similar to the word revelation. We've been in this series about revelation, which we'll pick back up in January. But revelation, the definition is an unveiling or revealing of something previously unknown because it was veiled or covered. A prophecy is something that's true, and God has said, and since the moment he said it, it was true, it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. Revelation, the book of, and it's mostly in its entirety, is a promise. It's true. It's going to happen. It's just not yet. But there are many prophecies in the Bible that have already been fulfilled, and most of them have to do with Jesus. There's literally 300-plus messages from God to his people that are true, that reveal, this is who my son is. This is what to be looking for if you want to recognize him. So knowing that definition of prophecy, I'll give you a real-life example, because some of you may have walked into prophecy before. Some of you may have experienced a prophecy fulfilled before. Um, I have, and I'll just share a quick story. If you know anything about me, you know that I served in the student ministry for years, and then the Great Recession happened, and that forced me to be taken off of the student team and moved into communications, and that was very confusing for me. That was very painful for me. That was very disruptive to my best idea, my goals, my desires, because I felt like God had said to me, not only do I want you to be a student pastor, I want you to lead the student ministry of Wood's Edge. Now, how can I lead the student ministry of Wood's Edge if I'm taken off of the team and moved to a whole other department? It didn't make sense to me. God, you told me I'm supposed to be the leader of the student ministry, and you basically just allowed me to be fired from the team. So I was very upset about that. I was very confused by that. And again, I would challenge you. Do you have anything in your life where you're like, God, I was counting on you for this. God, we talked about this, and it didn't happen. Be thinking of your example. Be thinking of your prayer of where you've been 
wanting to see God act, where you feel like maybe he lets you down. Because this was a big letdown for me. I mean, this rocked my faith. I was so sure I would be the lead student pastor, and now I've been fired. What's going on? So I took that question to the Lord, and I made sure that I had this book with me. Man, if you're praying to God and you don't have this book close at hand, if you aren't looking for your answer, not just in listening prayer, but reading God's truth, you're hurting yourself. This book is full of truth. This book answers every single question you will ever have in life. The only way to get to know how to find the answer is to get to know this book. So I went to the Lord and I just gushed. I vomited hate on him. Man, what's the deal? You're letting me down. And then I opened this book and I just trusted. Every word, every sentence, every story is true. So I'm going to trust that you're going to speak to me. And this is my question. I thought you said I was going to be the leader. What's the deal? And wouldn't you know it, I opened my Bible to a passage in 2 Chronicles 29 that said this, King David turned to the assembly and said, my son Solomon, whom God has clearly chosen as the next king of Israel, is still young and inexperienced. The work ahead of him is enormous, for the temple he will build is not for mere mortals, it is for the Lord God himself. That spoke to me. Because I'm God's son, just like all of you men in this room are God's sons, and all of you women in this room are God's daughters. Yeah, I said sin. And so I'm reading this, and I'm like, okay, I'm God's son, and I feel confident from the Lord that I have been clearly chosen, just as Solomon, to be the next leader of the student ministry, so I'm resonating there. And then it said, however, he's still young and inexperienced, and I'm like, well, I guess I'm young and inexperienced too. I've never led a ministry So now I'm starting to look at my circumstances not as a disappointment, but as an opportunity. I'm going to use whatever God has going my way, even though it's not the way I would have chosen, to grow in experience and to get a little older. And I would wait three years for his promise to come true. And one day, I just woke up one morning and went to work, and they came in and said, do you still feel called to lead the student ministry? And three years had gone by, and I was like, absolutely. And they said, well, it's yours. And they gave it to me. And if they had given it to me before then, if I had tried to take it, if I tried to manufacture an answer to that prayer on my own, it would have been disastrous. What are you waiting for? What are you praying for? Have you tried to manufacture your own answer? Have you just been like, well, it didn't happen the way I wanted it to, so I'm just out of here? People give up on God because they don't get answers to prayer. You need to remember the lessons of a prophecy. You need to remember that God when he wants you to be part of watching a promise come true, only requires one thing, and it's obedience. And the obedience he's desiring is keep watch, be patient, and believe that I will answer you. Do you have any prayer requests out there? Are you remembering something today that you prayed a year ago or three ago, and it's coming up? Keep watch for an answer. Wait patiently for your answer and believe that the answer is coming. Sometimes it's already arrived. So, to put it another way, just have a little faith. Have a little faith in God. Trust that he's God and you're not. Trust that he and his timing are more ordained and sovereign than your timing. If I had gone out and taken the answer I wanted, it would have ruined me. I would not be standing here before you today. 
Hebrews 11, 1 and 6 says this about faith. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for, and it is evidence of things we cannot see. It is impossible to please God without faith. Students, are you praying for something? You need to couple your prayer with some faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. So when you pray, be watching, be waiting, and be believing. He's going to answer me. He's going he's to say something. The art of waiting, the art of watching, the art of believing is all through the Bible. We just think, I'm going to pray and it's going to show up. Lamborghini, boom! Like, that's not how it works. God's not a slot machine. He wants to grow us in the prayer. He wants to grow us in the relationship. And the art of watching and waiting and believing is all through the Scriptures, particularly with prophecies, which is what we're talking about this morning. One of the most famous prophecies in all the Bible about the Messiah, about Jesus, is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It was written 800 years before Jesus would be born, and it said this, look, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It's another prophecy that says if you want to recognize the Messiah, if you want to recognize the Savior of the world, look for this. Look for this. The virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son, and she will call him Emmanuel. So there's some really clear... I mean, if a virgin gives birth to a baby, you're going to hear about it if you live anywhere nearby. And not only a baby, but a son. And he's going to be called Emmanuel. There's three really big clues right there. And what about this recipe, this formula of watching, waiting, believing? Do we see that in that scripture, that prophecy? Absolutely. I mean, the first word is look, which is another way of saying keep watch. And there's a big difference between passive watching and active watching. Like if I said, look at that, and you're just like, what? That's not looking when it comes to the Bible. If you're looking for an answer, like you're looking high and low, you are searching and seeking, you're knocking and asking, you're looking for the answer. When you pray, the next step is to start looking for God's response to your prayer. But we in the West have this habit of praying and then just walking off and forgetting we ever prayed anything at all. That's not faith. That's not God-honoring. When you pray, then perk up and look around and keep looking, like scan the horizon. We're supposed to pray, it says, like watchmen on a tower where you're walking all around the tower and you're looking everywhere for that answer that's coming. That's how we're supposed to look and keep watch for answers to prayer. What about waiting? Is waiting in this prophecy? Heck yeah. Waiting's one of the hardest spiritual disciplines there is, and yes, it's one of the most essential. And there's so much waiting in this. It's really just two sentences. It says... I will give you a sign. Okay, that means you gave it to me? No, I will. It's coming. You have to wait for it. Um, she will conceive a child. Has it happened yet? No, it's going to happen. It will happen. You have to wait for it. Uh, she will give birth to a son. She already gave birth? No, she hadn't given birth yet. You, it will happen. Um, they will call him Emmanuel. Oh, it's already happened? No, you have to wait. So often God says, oh yeah, I'm totally going to answer your prayer. In fact, it's on the way. You asked for this thing, so now I'm building it. I'm setting it up. I'm preparing it and you. Just be patient. It's coming. I mean, God, if you, if you want it that bad, isn't it worth waiting for? So we need to keep watch. We need to wait. And then we just need to believe. What do we need to believe about this scripture? What impossible thing is in this promise that we need to just have a little faith in? A virgin. 
is going to have a baby. It's, there's no way. It's impossible. Humanly speaking, it can't happen. What is God calling you to do that you feel like is impossible? I mean, dude, he made a baby inside of Mary through the Holy Spirit. Like, he is the God of the impossible. What is he challenging you to? Maybe sometimes you guys pray, and you come up to me afterward, and like, oh, God would never say that to me because it's too amazing. That's the kind of things God calls us to. Don't be afraid of the impossible. God isn't. Keep watch. Keep waiting and be patient. And just believe. It can happen. I have no college degree. I have no seminary degree. I should not have graduated high school. I, I either fooled those suckers or they were like, just get them out of here. I have no right to be standing before you as your student pastor according to pedigree. But God said he was going to do it, and he did it. It's the same for you. What are you praying for? Does it seem impossible? Good. Keep watch. Keep waiting. Believe that it's possible. All right. So again, reminder, just real quick, what is a prophecy? It's a message of divine truth revealing God's will. It's a divinely inspired prediction. It's, hey, this is going to happen. So how do we establish if Jesus was the Messiah? Well, we look at the prophecies, these divinely inspired predictions about who he would be. And as I mentioned before, there's over 300 messianic, messiah-oriented prophecies in the Bible. Let's just look at eight. 300 plus, we'll just look at eight. And what I love about these eight is that not only biblically can we see, okay, that happened, but historically, they're accepted. They, they took place. Even if you don't believe in God, historically, the evidence is overwhelming that these things happened. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Yes. It was predicted in prophecy in Micah 5, Old Testament, and we see that it came true in Matthew 2, New Testament. The Messiah will be a descendant of David. Jesus, little baby Jesus, he can't determine where he's going to be born or who his descendants are going to be. He has no control over that, and yet he was a descendant of David. That was promised in 2 Samuel 7, and it was fulfilled, we see, in Luke chapter 1. The Messiah will need to be of the tribe of Judah. That was promised all the way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 49.10. And we see in Luke 3.33 that he was totally a member of the tribe of Judah. He would have to live in Nazareth for a season, and we know that that happened. In fact, that's where Joseph and Mary were from. We saw that promise in Isaiah 11. We saw it come true in Mark 2. He would have to move to Egypt. We know that happened historically. It was promised in Hosea 11 through prophecy. It came true in Matthew 2. He would be called Emmanuel. We already read that. He was called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He's here now in this room. He would be betrayed, and we know that happened. Thank you, Judas. We read about that first in Psalm 41, and we saw it came true in Luke 22. And he would be crucified with criminals. We saw that in Isaiah 53. And it came true in Matthew 27 and many other places. The crazy thing about Isaiah and crucifixion is that crucifixion did not even exist when it was written. David, just writing in the Lord's Spirit, describes this way of being killed that no one had even thought. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I saw that crucifixion the other. It never, it didn't exist until Roman times later. And yet he described a crucifixion in Isaiah chapter 53. And then that's how Jesus would be killed. So there's eight biblical and historical facts about Jesus. And you're like, yeah, but, you know, insert excuse here. It is so significant that he fulfilled even eight, let alone the 300 plus. And I'll give you an example. What are the odds? Like, 
Let's just think mathematically. Let's think, you know, gambling-wise. You know, Vegas, what are the odds of one person fulfilling just eight biblical prophecies? What do you think it is? One in a thousand? One in a million? I'm going to give you guys a, a, a visual first before we get there. You guys know I collect found change. I walk around and find pennies and quarters and sometimes dollar bills and sometimes just crap, garbage, whatever. I find change on the ground and I pick it up and I keep it. And here's two of my jars, just two of some of the change. Look at this. What is this? This is a foreign coin. This was not up here. Somebody left me a coin. <laughs> you want to know what to give me for Christmas? Odd money. All right. Or like real money's fine too. Okay. So here's two jars of change, of coins, mostly pennies, but there's a variety. And between these two jars, there's roughly a thousand coins, but I believe there's even more than that. What are the odds, knowing that I have marked one of these coins already, that one of you can just get up, walk up here, and pick out the coin I marked on your first try? Well, if there's a thousand coins and you get one chance, that means... One in a thousand. We're talking about eight prophecies, so I would like eight people to just line up here right now, whoever gets up here first. And I want you to come and try and pick the coin that I have predetermined. I need three more people. I need one more person, Miles. And thank you for all the ladies. What's going on here? All right. Oh, Ellie, you're right there. What's up, girl? Way to represent. Give it up for Ellie. All right. One of these coins has a mark on it that only I know. Fulfilling eight biblical prophecies would be like just walking up and you can just pick it up. Like Jesus could be able to do that. So please pick a coin and I'll tell you if it's the one I picked. I like it. I like it. What's the date on that? It doesn't matter. It's not the coin. Go sit down. Kyle? I like it. Just with authority. No. Sit down. Ellie? Yeah, come on, Ellie. I like this. Oh my God. That's not it either. Go sit down. Paul? No, you were on the wrong side of the bowl. It's not even worth looking at. You're on the right side of the bowl, and not even close. Go away. Show me. No, sit down. Sam, you were really close to not getting it. Go sit down. Miles, no. No, you heard me say close. You went to the opposite side of the bowl. It's this janky little penny right here. So we just had eight people reach into a bowl of a 1,000 coins and give it a shot. What you don't know is if you had grabbed the right one, because there was a chance, I mean, slim, but I was going to give you my lucky silver dollar. This silver dollar was printed in 1900. It's older than many of you combined, and it's made of silver, so it's like a $30 coin. Not for you. It's for me. The reason I pulled out this coin is I have another illustration to help you understand the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight biblical prophecies. So... The number, and somebody has done extensive math on this, the number that represents the odds of Jesus fulfilling, of anyone fulfilling eight biblical prophecies, is one in quintillion. There's the number. That's a lot of zeros. One in quintillion chance of one person fulfilling just eight of the 300 prophecies that say this is who the Messiah will be. To give you an illustration of what that looks like, if I took this coin and just walked out into Texas, which, Frank, I'm already doing. Texas 
is 268,597 square miles. I could walk anywhere in Texas I want. I could go to Uvalde. I could go to Trinity. I could go to the Panhandle. I can go to Big Bend. I could just do it right here. Now, if one of you could just walk up directly from here to this coin, wherever I put it, and make a beeline and pick it up on your first try, well, even that would be too easy. You wouldn't know what city to go to. You wouldn't know what region. And it's not that easy. One in quintillion is not just go and find the coin. It's take the entire state of Texas and bury it two feet high in silver dollars. And one in quintillion represents you being able to go directly to my coin and pick it up on the first try, not knowing how deep it was, where it was, which one it was. Those are the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight, just eight prophecies. And we know, put them back up for me, that these happened not only biblical, but historically. The odds are in his favor. But he didn't fulfill eight. He fulfilled 300 plus. You guys, there is no way to calculate. There is no math that exists to discover. The number's too big for people or computers to figure out how to do odds like that. And yet we know especially if we have faith, 300-plus prophecies. So if that proves that Jesus was the Messiah, he was who he claimed to be, he was the Savior that was promised, the only other question is, how do we respond? How do we respond to the fact that a man came and fulfilled these 300 prophecies mainly for us, solely for us to be free from sin and death? to be healed, to discover identity, like all for good. How do you respond to something like that? Well, I'm going to read you Luke chapter 2, 1 through 18, and this is the account of the birth of Jesus and the answer to how we respond. The only appropriate response is in this passage. When I get to the shepherds, I want you to pay attention. Picture yourself with them. Picture yourself going with them. Luke 2, 1. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. So all returned to their ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of who? King David. He had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. There's three prophecies right there in like seven words. David's ancient home, and he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, there came time for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth. She laid him in a manger, prophecy, because there was no lodging available for them, prophecy. That night... There were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, do not be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, 
lying in a manger. And suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Who pleases God? People with faith. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go. Like right now, let's go. Two in the morning, I don't care. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's go see this thing that has happened. And they hurried, they ran, they booked it to the village, and they found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone. They told everyone. They probably talked about it every day for the rest of their life. I was tending my sheep. I stank. It was midnight, and the heavens opened, and I received good news that the Messiah has come. They told everyone what had happened and about what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. There's so many things we can say about the response of the shepherds. I just love the fact that it's black, it's dark, it's night. And they have just had their eyes like blown away from seeing all these amazing things in heaven. They probably have like that night blindness, like where you look at the light, but it's still dark. And those fools just pick up and run through rocky fields for miles down to a village. Just silly, just crazy, just dangerous. They didn't care because they said, let's go see the Messiah. Why were they so excited? Because these shepherds were Israelites, and Israelites read the Torah when they're kids, like you and I read or were read to Dr. Seuss, or insert book title here. Like, that's all they knew. They heard it all the time, so they knew what to look for. They knew what to listen for. When the angel was telling them, they're like, oh my God, those stories we've been hearing all I'm in it. I'm part of it. I get to tell other people about it. And they jetted down to see and they told everybody. And they were excited on a personal level because they realized the Messiah is here, which means our rebellion and our people's rebellion before us is about, no, in fact, it is, it's forgiven. Our sin is about to be removed. Our identities are about to be restored. Our wounds are about to be healed. I don't care if I fall down running to see Jesus. He'll heal me when I get there. I want to give you guys a glimpse. It doesn't, it doesn't even do it justice. I almost don't want to show it, but I do because it's great. I want to give you guys a glimpse of just a fraction of the excitement that these guys must have experienced, that these guys must have felt as a group getting to see something once in a lifetime. Just a couple years ago, there was a once in a lifetime event at an Auburn, Alabama game where it's 28-28 and the game's almost over and they're going to kick the field goal and they should, for all intents and purposes, make it. They have an incredible kicker and they got this one guy on the opposing team that just hangs out under the goal in case they miss, right? And he's like, I'm not even gonna, you know, I'm, I'm here for no reason. Watch what happens and again, watch the reaction as these people see this once in a lifetime thing. 
Remember, a blocked kick can go the other way, too. He's got to be careful and get it up. On the way. No, returned by Chris Davis. Davis goes left. Davis gets a block. Davis has another block. Chris Davis. No flags. Touchdown, Auburn. An answered prayer. Look at those people storming the field. You guys, a once-in-a-lifetime game. Everybody that was there remembers that. Talk about it still. They'll be watching a game with their friend, and they're, that, they're now that annoying person, right? Every time they're, yeah, well, I was at the Auburn-Alabama game. But they will never forget that moment. It was the same for the shepherds, but magnified, multiplied, times a billion. They didn't see somebody catch a ball and get lucky on a run. They saw the heavens opened up for them. They heard an angel come and speak directly to them. What you have been praying for, what your ancestors have been praying for, the healing you've been waiting for, the identity you've been longing for, the the wholeness you've been hungry for, it's here. It's come. Enjoy it. Share it. You guys, that's the only necessary, that's the only appropriate response to what do you love about Christmas? It's the season that we celebrate. Our Savior, God's Son, came to earth, and we, there's no denying it was God, and he set us free. He gave us an identity. He healed our hurts. You guys, we need to change the way that we think about Christmas. We need to change the way we think about Christmas by changing the way we think about Jesus. I love the lights. I love the food. I love all of it. But the reason it should excite me is because it's all meant to celebrate. Jesus came and died for me and you. He set me free from sin and death. He reconciled our relationship with God, our Father. He has made a way for us to not only have to be fearless in the face of a tough circumstance, but fearless in the face of death. Like, it's bigger than we can imagine. I want to read you guys something short that just really impresses upon me in a really beautiful language the significance of Christmas, the significance of the virgin birth. And I I want to read it to you, but like really over you. So I invite you guys to just bow your heads and just maybe right now between you and the Lord, just ask, God, will you just stir my heart? Will you inspire me to understand, not just in this moment, for the rest of this month, how amazing and beautiful and spiritual and magnificent it is that you came and were born and lived and died and rose again for me. The virgin birth, one of the three most amazing moments in human history, guards the doorway of the mystery of Christmas. And we must not allow ourselves to rush past this, ho- uh, this holy, beautiful truth. We must not allow ourselves to be distracted by this holy, beautiful truth. The miraculous way 
in which our Savior, our Messiah, entered our world, stands upon the threshold of the New Testament, unapologetically supernatural, defying rationalism, informing us that everything that follows this moment belongs to the impossible, the unbelievable, the incredible. Football games, changing seasons, school semesters, our very lives are here today and gone tomorrow. But eternal salvation from sin and death and hell, this is truly worth celebrating. And how dare we keep it quiet. Maintain this posture of prayer, you guys. And I want to challenge you with something. And if you want, feel free to reach under your seat and grab a pen and paper. But I feel led as your pastor to challenge every single one of you this morning. And I don't care if you're an adult in this room or a student. But as your pastor, I expect you. I expect this of you. In at least one area of your life, do you have a prayer where you're keeping watch the way we described this morning. I expect you to have a prayer request out there where you are waiting for God to respond on a daily basis. I expect this and I desire this for you that you are believing that God will respond to what you have given to him. I want to challenge you now. Maybe you have a fresh prayer request for the Lord or maybe you have an old request from the Lord where you have just walked by, where you've just forgotten, where you've just given up, and he is reminding you of that today. I want you to write down a prayer to Jesus this morning and be big and bold with it. Ask for the impossible. Ask for a healing. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for God to do something that only God can take credit for. And I want to challenge you for the rest of this month to keep watch for that answer, to wait patiently for that answer, and to believe the answer is coming. I'm going to pray, and I want you put pen to paper. It can be a paragraph. It can be a word. Jesus, we want to experience you. We want to witness you doing the impossible. We want you to put something personal into this season for us so that we have a fresh reason to celebrate you, to glorify you. Would you inspire every single heart in this room? Would you inspire every son, every daughter? What would you have us pray for this morning? Put that prayer in our thoughts. Put that prayer in our hearts. And students, as you hear it, just write it down. Maybe you're hearing, maybe you're sensing, I need to forgive somebody. Um, I need to understand a little bit better, who did you make me to be? Maybe there's somebody in your life that you just like, I really, that person needs prayer, and I'm the one. I'm the one. Just write that down. I'll give you about 30 seconds.
If you're still writing, just go ahead, tune me out. But for those of you that know and wrote down what you want, I got a second request for you. Um, what I love about the shepherd's response when they saw Jesus, when they heard truth, when they encountered God, they told everyone. You guys know that in January, Martin Luther King weekend is Freedom Weekend. It is our most powerful. It is our largest. It is our most impactful event of the year. Everything we do from the spring forward will be rooted in freedom. I want you guys there. I want to see this room packed out with hundreds so that when God shows up, so that when he speaks, so that when he sets you free and heals you and forgives you and stirs your heart for him like never before, he will receive that much more glory. But I don't just want you there. You have someone in your life that God would have you invite to freedom, to small groups, to church this December. I want you to just take one more second and just ask the Lord, God, I, give me one name. Who can I share you with? Who can I invite to freedom? Who would you have me bring to church? Just ask, who would you have me reach out to you? He's going to give you a name. He might give you three. Write them down. Do something about it before the sun goes down. God has blessed us so that we can bless others. Who can I bless today, Jesus? Capture their name and just own it. Do something with it. Don't wait till after lunch. Hit them up now. I'm going to pray for us, and then we can respond. We got tithe, communion, we got worship. If you wrote down a prayer that you just want to leave in faith, we have our mailboxes on the doors, and we will pray for those things too this week. I'm going to pray a scripture for you guys as we close, and then we'll respond. Isaiah 64. Oh God, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence as fire causes wood to burn and water to boil. Your coming will make the nations tremble. And then your enemies, our spiritual oppressors, they will learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations, beyond our wildest imaginations. And oh, how the mountains quaked. For since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. We have made our prayer requests to you, Lord. Increase our faith. Help us keep watch. Encourage us as we wait for the response that we know is coming. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys respond as you feel led.